So we've come to a turning point in our study of Isaiah. We finally made it. We made it through that first section that I've been talking about all the way since last August. We have been anticipating coming to chapter 40. Now our journey through chapters 1 through 39 was not a mistake. It was not a waste of time. It was a journey through prophetic utterances, also called oracles, which focused on judgment. And this judgment was, on, was stated by God. He said he's going to judge Judah, his own people. He had declarations of judgment of, of Israel, the northern ten tribes. Judgment upon the nations. Do you remember what they were? Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Syria, Ethiopia, Egypt, Babylon again, Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem itself, the city, and Tyre. All those had various oracles of judgment pronounced. And I want you to know they're just, they weren't just ancient nations, but those judgments carry over to this very moment because those nations are still represented in the world today. In our studies of God's promise to judge the nations for their unbelief and for their persecution of God's chosen people, we also found that God offers salvation to the nations. Isn't that good? That includes you and me. God offers salvation to the nations on an individual basis. He doesn't just wave his hand and say, well, that whole nation is saved and that whole nation is saved. No, he calls individuals out of them. The book of Revelation declares that every nation, every people group, on the face of the earth, represented down through the ages. There will be representatives of every nation in heaven. That's what the book of Revelation says. It's going to be awesome. Can you imagine being one of the representatives of your country in heaven? And I'm sure there'll be groups and, and you know, the scriptures picture, you know, John was given a vision they're in white robes and they're singing the praises of God and they're, and they're doing things that are bringing glory to God and they're enjoying His presence. And we know that God is going to have a lot of tasks for us to do and, and we are going to have lives to live in the new heaven and the new earth. And so, what an opportunity that we have today to recognize that God is in the business of saving people from every nation. This is why we send missionaries. This is why missionaries come to us. You know other countries are sending missionaries to the USA? They are, because they see the need. And there is a need. Isaiah chapter 40 contrasts the greatness of God with the feebleness of man. We're going to see that especially in verses 6 through 8. And later on, the weakness of idols in verses 18 to 20. And so the question arises, how could this broken down people group, Judah, ever be able to return to their land? How could this remnant of Jews come back to the land after being persecuted and scattered and beaten down and not really having any thing to hold them together, seemingly, except God himself. This text tells us that God is going to go before them and prepare the way. Much like John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. In fact, this text in Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4, are quoted in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all quote from Isaiah 40. And remember, except for the Psalms, Isaiah is quoted more in the New Testament than any other book. But all four Gospels quote this text, applying it in its ultimate prophecy to John the Baptist. We'll see that again in a moment. But first and foremost, God is saying that he before John the Baptist, is going to prepare the way for the Jewish people to come back to the land 
and he's going to restore them. And so he's saying in so many words through the mouth of Isaiah, don't look to yourselves, look to your God. He is great. He's the creator of the universe. Is he not able to sustain you? That's what this whole chapter is about. It's about comfort. And so if we were to put our message today in a a nutshell, after Judah was devastated by war at the hands of foreign enemies, God commanded that his people would indeed be comforted. Now, did you hear that? He didn't just predict it. He didn't just declare it. God commanded that his people will be comforted. He made an, an edict. He didn't just say, I'm throwing this out and I hope you get it and you know, maybe you'll be comforted. No, he says, I command, I am going to make this happen. The same God offers the same kind of comfort to us today. Anybody here need comfort? We all do. We sensed it this week as some of our church family have gone away off to heaven. The same God offers the same kind of comfort to you today if you will receive it. Would you like to be comforted? God offers it to you. And he declares through an edict that his people, Israel, will be comforted. You follow that? You're with me so far, right? And so I want you to recognize this contrast between the greatness of God and the feebleness of man. It's all through this chapter. And this contrast points to the fact that because we are weak, we need the Lord. And He will comfort us if we turn to Him. Now you're going to be very thrilled to hear that my sermon has six points. Instead of doing the three points, I'm doing the six points. Okay, are you with me? Please don't leave. We're going to make it. But number one, God's astounding command for comfort, verses 1 and 2. Secondly, God's outstanding forerunner to the comforter, and that's verses 3 and 8. Thirdly, God's prophetic revelation of his comfort, verses 9 through 11. Fourthly, God's divine attributes as the comforter. In case you're wondering, I didn't make a slide for this, so they're not making a mistake back there, all right? Okay, got to look out for my man back there, all right? Number five, God's spiritual requirement to worship the comforter. And lastly, God's simple prescription for comfort. Now, I gave these six points because that's the only way I could analyze this passage, but really, when it comes down to it, It's the last point that's going to be the message. That's why I didn't put it up there, because I thought, I'll give you six points, you're going to go, oh no, this is is not possible. It's the last point, and so here it is. God's simple prescription for comfort. We're going to get to that, but before we do, let's look at point number one. God's astounding command. Now, why do I say it's an astounding command? Well, you know, we said that there's a big break in in Isaiah. The first 39 chapters are compared to the Old Testament that has 39 books. You've heard that abundantly. And so this second portion has 27 chapters. It's compared to the New Testament with 27 books. And that is kind of a cool connection. I'm not sure how all that came about, but God knows what he's doing, and these chapter divisions, somebody figured them out. But you come to chapter 40, it's a dramatic change. In fact, if you go back to the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, scholarship concerning uh, biblical studies, liberalism swept from Europe and made it into America, and this kind of higher critical spirit of analyzing Scripture, and wanting to do away with all the miracle essence of Scripture. Are you acquainted with that? We, we call it liberalism. We call it 
And, you know, now liberalism almost looks good compared to the stuff that's going on now, but, but liberalism is not good. Liberalism was questioning God on every hand, looking at Scripture through the eye of making man the judge of Scripture instead of God the judge of Scripture. And so that kind of mindset led the scholars of that day to say, you know what? We don't think Isaiah wrote chapter 40 and the rest of the book. There's stuff in here that no human could have written. Uh, he predicts things that actually, you know, he predicted a couple hundred years before they happened. And, and so it must have been some of Isaiah's disciples that finished his book for him. In fact, these kind of guys have written books that say, well, Isaiah wrote the first part. We'll give, it, we'll give him credit for that. But then there is a so-called second Isaiah. They call him Deutero-Isaiah. He wrote chapter 40 and uh, a number of chapters in. And then some of them add a Trito-Isaiah, a third Isaiah. This is all hogwash. You know, this is, I'm, why am I even bothering to tell you this? Because I want you to know there are people that think like that. There's people that approach Scripture and think, I'm smarter than God, and I can figure this out, and I'm going to be the judge of it. Don't ever think that you can be the judge of Scripture. Don't come to Scripture and say, well, because I don't understand this, I cannot accept it. There's things in Scripture you're not going to understand because God's mind is infinite and yours isn't. And so you've got to come at times and say, you know what? God, I don't get this, but I trust you. And you said it, so I believe it. And that's not foolishness, that's faith. And so we come to this chapter 40, and I say, this is God's astounding command. Why is it astounding? Because of what just happened in the last 39 chapters. In fact, where we just left off with Hezekiah's folly. Remember? We ended chapters 38 and 39 with Hezekiah, a godly king, inviting the Babylonian envoys into his palace, showing them everything, and thinking that was a good idea. And Isaiah said that was a very bad idea, and those are the people that are going to come and carry your sons away and make them eunuchs, and the kingdom's going to be destroyed because of those people, and you have taken a terrible step. Well, isn't it kind of a little bit abrupt to move from Hezekiah's folly in chapter 39 to chapter 40, where God comes out and says, I am making an edict that my people are going to be comforted. We just got done reading Babylon's coming for us and it's bad news, but chapter 40, it's a break, it's a change, it's the second half of the book, it's an astounding command that changes everything. And from this point on to the end of the book, we just have the Lord pouring out encouragement. Just like he poured out judgment in the first 39 chapters, now these last 27, he's going to be pouring out encouragement, blessing. Now, these last 27 chapters wouldn't be as meaningful if we didn't have the first 39, would they? So you have to take the difficult with the good, okay? And so he says right here, comfort. And then he repeats it. Comfort, comfort, my people. You know, whenever God repeats something like that, you need to, to take note. This is an emphatic repetition. If God says something once, he means it. it kind of reminds me of my father. My dad used to say to me, if I say something to you once, I don't want to say it a second time. I was like, okay. That's how God is. When God says something once, he doesn't need to say it a second time. But if he says it a second time, you need to take notice. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And this command to comfort is made to all of God's people in general, which includes you. But it's also made into Jerusalem, specifically in verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
Now, you read that verse, and I know if you're like me, you read that and say, wow, you know, God is saying comfort Jerusalem. He loves Jerusalem. By the way, you know Jerusalem still exists, right? It does. You you know what the greatest proof that there's a God in heaven in one word? It's the word Jew. J-E-W. That is the greatest proof that there's a creator God. Because the fact that the Jew still exists in this world points to the fact that all of Scripture is true, that God still has Jerusalem. It hasn't been wiped off the map. The Temple Mount's there. There's people just waiting in the wings to rebuild a temple that will be built during the tribulation period. Later on, there'll be a millennial temple described in the book of Ezekiel. God has a lot to say about Jerusalem. He loves Jerusalem and the Jewish people, and that is proof that there is a God. But you know what's strange about this verse? He talks about the tenderness and the pardon and the comfort a hundred years before they're going to be carried away into captivity. The captivity hasn't happened yet. In other words, this verse is not really going to come alive until after some time has taken place. You see, this is why the liberal scholars say, well, Isaiah couldn't have written this. doesn't make sense. He's telling us there's going to be comfort and then everything's going to be great. And a hundred years later, the Babylonian captivity is going to take place beginning in 605, and then another wave in 597, and then finally in 586, the temple's going to be completely destroyed. And then there's going to be 70 years of desolation. And when the small remnant comes wandering back, and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra and all those ones, when they do come back, and they rebuild the temple, there's a few people that remembered the Solomon's temple, and they look at the, the next temple, and they just weep, because it's nothing compared to what. And that's why these scholars say, well, Isaiah couldn't have written this. This doesn't make sense to talk about comfort when the bad stuff hasn't even happened yet. But see, God isn't bound by time. And he knew that they would need to read this verse later on. He knew that they needed it right now, even before the bad stuff would happen. And he also knew that we would be reading it today and realizing, wow, God has this. He has a plan and a purpose. And he's not bound by time. And he can say things, and he can tell Isaiah predictions that are going to come true later, like the name of Cyrus, you know. He named Cyrus like, 200 years before he, was, he came on the scene. And so this command for comfort truly is astounding. Did you get that? It changes everything. It's where the book changes. Okay, so there's an astounding uh, command for comfort. But that leads to my second point, and it's verses 3 through 8. God's outstanding forerunner to the comforter. God's outstanding forerunner to the comforter. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 8. Notice what it says. This should kind of, when you hear this, you should think, I've heard this somewhere. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, now I already told you the answer. You know, you, you know the answer, right? Well, where, where does this show up? You already know, right? All four Gospels. It's, it's found in Matthew 3.3, 3, Mark 1.3, Luke 3.4, and John 1.23. 
I think we got some threes going on there. The New Testament declares the fulfillment of this prophecy is John the Baptist. But I want you to see, first of all, there was an initial meaning for the present moment. And a lot of times when God gives prophecy, he'll speak to the people of that day, and then there will be like a near fulfillment and then a later fulfillment. And that's what happens here. The ultimate fulfillment is John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. And so you can't open any of the Gospels and read very far without reading quotation from Isaiah 40. But remember, too, what God is saying initially here is he's going to prepare the way to bring the people back. And in like manner, John the Baptist is going to come and declare the way for Jesus. There's also something really interesting going on in this passage that I think could very easily be lost. You read it and you think, oh, I didn't really notice. Look at verse 3 again, would you? It says, um, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now the word way is the word derek, and it simply means a path. Make a path in the wilderness. Make a path for the Lord. But then notice the next statement. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, you know, as we've said so often, you know, Hebrew, especially when things are given in poetic form, they'll have a statement and then they'll repeat the statement, maybe in similar words and expand on it and so on. But there's this little, just slight difference here in those two words because a pathway and a highway are two very different things. The pathway was the first coming of the Lord. And remember when Jesus came the first time, people didn't even notice. You know, people didn't know who he was. Isaiah described him as ordinary in his appearance. I mean, Jesus lived 30 years before he began his public ministry. He was in the shadows. And then John the Baptist got up and started preaching and started declaring this text. But you know what? That word highway, that is something entirely different than a path. A highway was an elevated road that was built for a king. It required engineering. It required not just coming through, you know, you got the... uh, the Army Corps of Engineers that goes before the Army and builds bridges and clears stuff out of the way so they can get through. Well, John the Baptist cleared the way by his preaching, and Jesus stepped forth and did his ministry. But there's coming a day when Jesus comes again that he's not going to come out of the shadows. He's going to come on a highway that's been built and lifted up prepared for a king. And when he comes, every eye will see him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord Kyrios Yahweh. And so we've got some interesting things coming on here. By the way, the forerunner's message contains four things. A command to clear the way, providing first of all a path, but then later on this raised highway made for a king. But secondly, this forerunner's message contains a promise of justice and equity, and it describes a moral and spiritual condition that can only be obtained in the kingdom age. When the children of Israel returned from the 70-year captivity, they didn't come back to perfection, did they? They came back to a mess of problems. Mixtures of people groups that hated each other later became known as the Samaritans. And the temple was rebuilt and didn't look like much for hundreds of years until later on. You know, Herod came in and, and built all around it and beautified it and took him 46 years to do it. The description of the equity and the justice 
that's going to come. It says in verse 5, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That part has yet to be fulfilled until Jesus comes the second time. And so the forerunner's message contains a prediction of the revelation of God's glory. We see that here. We saw it back in chapter 6. Remember the vision of the throne room of God? Other prophets spoke of that. Habakkuk spoke of it in uh, Habakkuk 2.14. Also, the forerunner's message contains the preaching of human vanity and human depravity. And that moves us now into verses 6 through 8. And again, here's passages that you have heard. They've been alluded to. James alludes to verse 8 in his uh, um, letter, the general epistle of James. What does it say? Verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Has anybody been mowing grass lately? I know I have. About every four days it looks like, oh my word. Here we go again. And I'm mowing this grass and collecting it and all these little particles are floating around and I'm breathing them in and fighting off whatever they cause, you know. But there's something about that. You get those grass clippings. It doesn't take long for them to start to spoil. Have you noticed that? You don't want those to be hanging around for a long time. Grass withers and fades. You know, it's amazing. By the way, got the first rose on the rose bush this week. I was pretty happy about that. I've been digging around the roses. You know, we're moving, but I want those roses to look really good for the next people. And the first one came out. But you know, it won't be long. That thing's going to fade. I'll have to snip it off and watch for the next one. Grass withers, flowers fade. And the Lord says, people are like that. People come and go. Flesh is like that. And when he talks about flesh, he's talking about the fact that left to ourselves, we're inadequate. Left to ourselves, we can't control our destiny. But notice what he does say in verse, in verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You've got to love that verse, don't you? I mean, this is why I have spent my life in this text, in this Bible, trying my best to, to understand it in its entirety and trying to bring it together and just going over and over it in my mind. And, and I, I have to admit, I haven't even scratched the surface. Have you? The grass withers, the flower fades. People come and go, left to ourselves. You know, we're going to just turn back into dust. But, because of God's Word, and because of what Jesus has done, we're going to be resurrected. And we are going to be in the presence of God with brand new glorified bodies and live with Him forever. And nothing is better than that. That leads me to my third point, and that is that God's prophetic revelation of his comfort. God has something to say about the fact that he is going to do this, and he reveals some things about himself in verses 9 through 11. In verse 9 it says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. God says something about Himself here. You know, we could, we could spend a whole time, we could spend a sermon on just verses 9 through 11. Because God reveals himself in four ways. First of all, he is revealed as a personal God. 
He is saying, and he's kind of personifying Jerusalem as the herald of good news. He says, Jerusalem, you need to proclaim my greatness. You need to lift up your voice. And you need to say to everyone, behold your God. Why? Because he's a personal God. You can know him. And he goes on in verse 10 to say, and he is deliverer and king. He has a mighty arm. He's coming to rule. And furthermore, in verse 10, he's going to reward those who follow after him and bow to him. And finally, he's, in verse 11, he's going to be a shepherd to all those who follow him. He's going to pick us up like a shepherd picks up his lambs in his arms. He's going to hold them close. By the way, the Lord wants to hold you close today if you're hurting. And no matter what, he wants to carry you. It says he will gently lead the, the ewes, the, the, the ones who are with young. And so God is pictured as this personal God that he can be known. And he's pictured as this deliverer and king and a rewarder of those who will believe in him. And as a shepherd, God's exquisite love for Israel is portrayed in this shepherd-like carrying as he restores his people in his bosom. And isn't that why Jesus said, and maybe he even had this passage in mind, I am the good shepherd. Jesus said that. I get to be called an under-shepherd, a servant of Jesus. And you know, shepherding is a wonderful thing, but it's also exhausting. But Jesus is the good shepherd who never gets tired. He will never say to you, I I'm too tired today. You know, pray to me tomorrow. I need a break today. You know, we, we need breaks, don't we? But Jesus never will say that. And so we see this prophetic revelation of himself as this comforting God who can be known, who delivers us, who rewards us, and who shepherds us. That leads me to my fourth point. God's divine attributes as the comforter. In this next section, verses 12 through 17, we find some characteristics, some attributes, some qualities about the Lord that are, that are truly amazing. And again, they bring comfort. Notice what he says in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? who made him understand, who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. You ever heard that before? And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now, did you hear that? We just read verses 12 through 17. And this is all about God's divine attributes. And it's in question form, and it's saying, you know, who, who's like God? Do you know anyone? Doesn't it sound like God talking to Job? Remember when he said to Job, uh, Job, you've been complaining a lot. I just thought you know, I'd point that out. And I'm the creator and I know a little bit more than you know, Job. And by the way, Job, were you there when I created the universe? Were you there when I spoke it into being? Did you see me create the sons of God, the angels in heaven? Did, were you there when I, when I made the snow? I mean, it's, it's, it's overwhelming, isn't it? Wouldn't, wouldn't you just feel like if you were Job, you just wanted to crawl in a hole somewhere? Like, oh, man. I just flapped my lips way too long here. And now I've got to... Well, you know, Isaiah's kind of saying the same thing. By the way, the comforter that he's talking about here, when you think of comforter, what do you think of? Now, don't answer, just think. When you think of the comforter, who do you think of? Now, don't answer. You know who the comforter is? It's Jesus. Now, were you thinking of the Holy Spirit? Anybody thinking of the Holy Spirit? That's because your New Testament thinking, and you're jumping ahead, 
So why is the comforter in this text Jesus, but then you come to John 14, John 16, the comforter is the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is the ultimate comforter. And the Holy Spirit took his place as comforter when Jesus went back to heaven. And so the Holy Spirit is Jesus in you. See that connection? That's the thing about God and the whole triune God and the Trinity and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, having the same essence and not having the limitations that we want to think about. But, But Jesus ultimately is the comforter, and then he sent the Holy Spirit to take his place. And that's why we automatically think of the Holy Spirit as our comforter, because of where we live right now in this New Testament era, waiting for Jesus to return. But in this text, it's Jesus we're talking about. And yes, he hasn't come yet as the God-man, but it's anticipating him, because he is the creator. And that's why Paul would write in Colossians 1, that in him all the fullness of God dwells, and he's the one who creates. He's the one who held it together. That's why the Gospel of John begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's talking about Jesus. And this here, too, is Jesus the Comforter. Now, not all of his attributes are mentioned, But in verse 12, his power is limitless. He says, you know, who can measure the heavens with a span? What's a span? It's the distance between your pinky and your thumb. And God just puts his hand out and measures the whole universe like that. As if he really had a hand like that. But, you know, he tries to help us to understand. So his power is limitless. His wisdom is unsearchable, verses 13 and 14. And his being is incomparable. So there's three attributes. Limitless, unsearchable, incomparable. And just to explain the incomparable part, in verses 15 to 17, he is the creator, he's the world ruler, and he's the sustainer of the universe. Now those aren't all of his attributes. He just mentions some of them. He has no limit. You can't search his wisdom. And you can't compare him to anyone because he's the creator and he controls everything. Well, these are some awesome verses, but we need to go on because the next section, point number five, is verses 18 to 26, and it's God's spiritual requirement to worship the Comforter. Now, why does God say there's a requirement to worship and there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it? Why does God say that? That's what he's saying in these next verses. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now, did you follow that? I hope that you catch the tone of that, verses 18 to 26. Because Since God is omnipotent and omniscient and incomparable, it is thus impossible to compare anything or anyone or any likeness with him. Remember the Ten Commandments? What were they? Don't have any other gods. What was the next one? Don't make a graven image and don't take my name in vain. Okay, so that he starts off three commands about himself. Why? Because there's a certain way to worship God and there's a way not to. 
And have you noticed how most of the world is hung up on worshiping God the wrong way? With idols. You know, some people groups actually make an idol out of wood or stone or precious metal. They make it, and then they say, that's my God, and they bow down to it. The next chapter, by the way, is all about that, chapter 41. <laughs> you know, God actually makes fun of those who make idols. They say, yeah, a guy goes and cuts down a tree and, uh, you know, chops up the wood, and he takes some of it, and he uses it for firewood, and it has a meal. And then he takes some more of the wood, and he fashions it into an idol and bows down to it. How smart is that? You know, that's what chapter 41 is saying. What's the answer? It's not smart. You can't make yourself a god. You can't worship God the way you want to. And before you get a little bit too smug here and say, well, I'm sure glad I don't do that. You know, I don't have like a little place in my house with a little thing that I built and maybe a little area where I go and bow down and pray. You know, I've been in houses like that. Have you? I've been in places where there's idols. I've been, I've seen other places in the world where people are committed to things, you know, and, and they want to worship God with something tangible. They want to touch it. They want to look at it. But God says, you can't do that because I cannot be limited. So the only way you can worship me is in spirit. And God even goes so far to say, don't even think about an, uh, an image of me. Don't picture me like an old grandpa with white hair up there, and father time or something like that. Don't do that. You know, we picture Jesus. What does he look like? We don't know. But God says, don't worship me like that. Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, right? And that's what he's saying here in this passage. You're going to make an idol and call that your God? Don't do it. I'm the one who sits above the circle of the earth. Isn't it interesting that verse 22, the Bible, we already knew that the world is round. It took man a long time to figure this out if they had just read the Bible. Read Isaiah, read Job. God already said the world's round. But you can't worship me the way you want to. You have to worship me, God says, the way I prescribe and that is a spiritual experience. By the way, are we worshiping God right now? You know, we sing and we focus on truth and we use music to lift our hearts because the Bible tells us to do that. And then we take God's word and we expound it. And you know, that's all I get to do. I don't get to give you anything new. I get to just expound on what's already there. And so really, I have almost nothing to do with any of this. It is a joy to get to do this thing called preaching, but, but really, it's not about you or me. It's about the Lord and His Spirit taking His Word right now. And as you're sitting here contemplating what this text says and, and trying to make heads or tails about what I'm talking about, we should be entering into a worship experience and come away saying, wow, God, you are awesome. That's what we should be doing. Remember I said my sixth point was really my sermon? Here it is. Last point, verse 27. God's simple prescription for comfort. Would you like to know? It's God's prescription, not mine. Verse 27 says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you ever said that? What is, that, what is verse 27 saying? Have you ever thought, wow, God isn't hearing my prayers. I've been praying and he doesn't answer. Now you've never said that, right? You've never thought that. You've never said, wow, I prayed about that. God did nothing. Wow, what a great God. He doesn't even pay attention to me. I feel like my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. You ever thought like that? 
That's wrong. God hears prayers. He knows what's in your heart. He knows everything. And what he wants you to know is he knows your circumstances. And he says here, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? Nothing is hidden from him. He knows everything about you. And he knows what you need. And not only that, he loves you. And so the first point of this prescription is the Lord knows your circumstances. Believe that. Can you believe that with me? The Lord knows your circumstances. Second point of the prescription. You know the greatness of God. Do you know the greatness of God? Well, verse 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Let me ask you, I'm going to ask you, do you know the greatness of God? Now you've been hearing this whole sermon about how great God is. Are you believing it? Are you sitting here saying, well, you know, I sure hope he gets done soon so I can go eat lunch. I sure hope you're not thinking that. Don't think that. Think about the greatness of God. God is asking you, have you not known? Have you not heard? Your God is the everlasting God. He's the creator. He never gets tired. There's never a question that he doesn't know the answer. That's your God. And he knows you. He know, you know, I love that song Mark often leads at times. He knows my name. I cry every time I hear that because I think, why, why would he bother with me when there's all the people of the world, seven billion of them, why would he know my name? But he does, and he knows yours. He does. So this prescription is, the Lord knows your circumstances, and you know the greatness of God. You need to grab hold of that. My God is able to do anything Thirdly, he is the source of strength. Verses 29 and 30. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Once known as the world's strongest man, there was an American weightlifter named Paul Anderson who set a world record in the 1956 Olympics. It was in Melbourne, Australia. He was having an inner ear infection, and he had a 103-degree fever. He fell behind all the front runners. His only chance for a gold medal was to set an Olympic record. His first two attempts failed badly. He's a very burly athlete, you can imagine, if you're a weightlifter. He prayed to God. He said, I didn't make a bargain with God, I just asked him to help me. On his final lift, get this, he lifted 413.5 pounds over his head and sent the world record and won the gold medal. Well, you know, You might not be a weightlifter. But there comes a time where we need to know the Lord is the source of our strength. Sometimes we feel exhausted. And that's when we say, Lord, I need you. The last part of the prescription is this. Verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Interesting progression there, going from flying like an eagle to running to walking. Kind of like the picture of life as we kind of slow down as we go through this life. But the main point is that you must learn to wait on the Lord. So the prescription goes like this. The Lord knows your circumstances. Do you believe it? You know the greatness of God. Do you believe it? He is the source of your strength. Do you believe it? You must learn to wait on the Lord. Do you like that last part? 
you know, even I'm, I'm waiting right now for my sermon to end. It's going gonna, it's gonna to end, by the way. I know my sermons are good illustrations of eternity, but uh, you must learn to wait on the Lord. Anybody ever struggle with waiting? Don't we all struggle with that on some level? Some of us demonstrate more patience than others. But you know, if you don't get anything else today, if you don't get anything else out of this message, if, the, if the only one little thought hangs with your mind as you walk out of here, it's that God wants you to wait on Him and He will comfort you. That's it. He knows your circumstances. You know how great He is. He's the source of your strength. And you and I must learn to wait. Well, my principles are actually what I just said. The same thing. We must trust the Lord knows our, our situation. And we have to come to the place where we believe it. We worship the Lord by focusing on His great attributes. He wants us to think His thoughts and rely on Him. And so when you are weary, ask the Lord for strength. Did you notice? He promises to give it to those who wait. Even though we don't like to wait, remember it's in the waiting room that God molds us into the image of Christ. And so trust Him today. Our Father in Heaven, we bow before You, Lord, and as we've been laboring over this passage, I pray, Lord, that You would cause us to take it to heart. There's a lot of things to think about from this passage, but if we could just take that thought about they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. We need you, Lord. This is my prayer in Jesus' name.